Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Welcome. Different cadence there. Didn't like that. It's not how I normally say it. It was different. Shalom. Shalom lecha. How are we doing, Tim? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing just fine. A peachy, cold night in the fall. It's time to go hunting. It is. It is that time. And uh, anyway, you want to know what's in this episode, Tim? Uh, Sure. I'm I'm dying to know, Charlie. Fill me (laughs) in. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, five parts of the podcast today. Number one, Andy's Weekly Wisdom, which there will be a surprise. Ooh, how's that for a tease? Two, we're going to come back to the email from Isaiah from last week, where he asked a question, and uh, we'll read that, and we'll talk about that for a little bit. Then we get to that thing we always do. We're going to talk about the things we're reading. The main content of the episode is going to be... My paper from the summer. Tim wrote a paper on spiritual slash actual adultery. Well, it's about the significance of sex in the Old Testament. And so a study of the degrees of sexual sin and consequences in the Old Testament. And we will talk about that. And then we'll close with a final meditation in God's word in James chapter four. So homemade sound effects. Whoosh. Whoosh. Okay. Let me pull up Andy's weekly wisdom. And I have to remember where... (laughs) Do I find that? He emailed all of us. Yes. Well, he emailed you, but then there's two different emails for me, I think. Because I think there's my faith email and then there's my other email. Anyway, so if you were listening last week, the main content of the episode was an article written about C.S. Lewis, Five Cardinal Rules for Life by C.S. Lewis, by that other guy on that other thing. And Andy... Thinkling Stearns wrote into us about this. And so I am just going to read his email. I will not try to impersonate Andy. I'm just going to read it. So, greetings, Thinklings. I was listening to your latest episode and thought you might like a little more context to the Medium article about Lewis's five cardinal rules. I read that email when Randy sent it in a while back, but I was at chemo with Robin at the time. I had heard this Lewis quote, parentheses, the one about life being too deep for words, that one that we were like, I don't Uh, think he actually said that, but could not believe he wrote it at the time. The quote literally goes against everything I know and love about Lewis. He is known for being able to clearly communicate. His interaction with the great knock at Bookham taught him not to use careless words. His philosophical writings are challenging but precise. And his advice to a reader about how to develop your own style is to make sure you not only say what you mean, but prevent the reader from understanding the wrong meaning from your words. See quote at the end of this email, which we will see. So, when I read the first quote of this article, I I was rather dubious of the writer. This couldn't be something Lewis wrote. Sure enough, It's a fake. (laughs) He just says it outrightly. (laughs) William Flattery, parentheses, who runs the site EssentialLewis.com, has done extensive Lewis work 
and one of his books is on just this topic. Here is what he has to say about this quote. So Flattery, who runs the Central Lewis, here's a quote about the quote we were deliberating on. I just think it's crazy that people are so passionate about all of this, but hey, let's learn. Let's learn. So here's the quote, life is too deep for words, so don't try to describe it, just live it. Mm -hmm. It was only near the end of my research, this is Flattery speaking, for this book that I learned of this quotation. Like so many of the expressions explored already, it aims to spur you on with profound wisdom. However, given that Lewis taught literature, it seems highly questionable that he would say we should not try to describe life in words. Apt point. Mm. The earliest online reference to this expression with Lewis's name associated with it is 2002, where I found it in Google Groups. Several books cite Lewis with the 2009 title, The Breast Cancer Survivor's Daily Quote Book, being the earliest. However, in the 2012 book, Smiles, Poems, Thoughts to Ponder, no author is listed for this quote, and so I consider the expression to be from an unknown author. While I was tracking down clues to this quotation, I uncovered a variation of the quote that has two additional sentences. These extra words and further confirmation add further confirmation of the fact that Lewis didn't write it. They are, nothing in life is to be answered. It is only to be understood. Fortunately, these extra 13 words have not been associated with Lewis yet. <laughs> and he does what he should do. Stearns tells us exactly where that came from. William O'Flattery, uh, the misquotable C.S. Lewis. Uh, so you can look that book up. This is back to Andy. So when I saw Randy's email, I knew I needed to reply and talk about this. But of course, Robin's health made that impossible. So I chalked it up to a future episode idea in my mind. Last week from hospice, I heard Charlie mention they, we would, that they would do a, a future episode on it and thought, ooh, I'm glad they didn't talk about it yet. I'll make sure I say something when we record that in the future. Well, the future came this week. <laughs> uh, laughing emoji. Sorry to my two co-hosts that I couldn't take care of this before they aired the episode. There are a few good lessons here for us all. If you read someone long enough, you start to know them a little. To that point, to the point that you can spot a statement that seems kind of fishy. Were it not for the work of William O'Flattery, though, I would have had no way of confirming my suspicion. But thankfully, his hard work and research helped to dismiss the postmodern view of language and meaning. Ooh. And so we were spot on that yeah. while we didn't have the ammo and the gun, mm. we knew, you know, there's smoke like yeah. that. That's not Lewis. It just says something also about online sources or online little quippy blogging things. I think you even made a comment about, sounds like chat GPT wrote this or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, whoever put this thing together, it doesn't reflect a knowledge. The person does not reflect a real knowledge of Lewis because somebody who really knew Lewis would see a quote like that and be like, huh? And they definitely wouldn't have put it in like the top five. Yeah. And so here's the end of, uh, we, we still have, we have a couple of PSs to go here. So, excuse me. <clears throat> well, this is Andy. That's all I have for you listeners. I know I could have recorded a few minutes of audio and sent it to Charlie and Tim, but I thought it would be more fun to send in listener feedback, since right now I'm a listener. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> On a personal note, I write this as Robin has been in hospice for a full seven weeks. We are so thankful for the grace of God and his mercy in allowing us to have so much extra time, and in parentheses, extra from our perspective, but not from God's. Hmm. 
Please keep my dear wife in your prayers. Mm. Pray for me and the kids as well. And please pray for Tim and Charlie, who are shouldering the bulk of the work on this fine podcast. Gratefully, an avid listener. P.S. Here is the above-mentioned quote from Lewis on writing advice. Originally, I found this in a 2011 TGC article. So this is Lewis's last interview from May 7, 1963, six months before he died. One of Sherwood Witt's questions was on writing. How would you suggest a young Christian writer go about developing style? Lewis responds, The way for a person to develop a style is A, to know exactly what he wants to say, and B, to be sure he is saying exactly that. The reader must... The reader, we must remember, does not start by knowing what we mean. If our words are ambiguous, our meaning will escape him. I sometimes think that writing is like driving sheep down a road. If there is any gate open to the left or the right, the reader will most certainly get into it. Again, he cites where he got this from. So, three for three on citations. (laughs) P.P.S. So, another one. This is one of the most impactful quotes of Lewis for me personally. It taught me... Not to be concerned that I said the right thing, but rather to be concerned if that thing I said made sense to the person I said it to. It's the difference between self-focused communication, I didn't say anything wrong, you just misunderstood what I meant, some parentheses, and other-focused communication. If I say this, what will my audience think that meant? (laughs) PPPS. I've had this quote uh, on my wall in my office for years. It's a favorite. If you are ever in my office, I'll show you my other favorite Lewis quotes, and a few others not by Lewis. Andy Stearns. That's good stuff. Yes. A great weekly wisdom from Andy himself. A listener. Thank you, Andy. We miss you. Mm. Any thoughts on that? That was really good. I think he really was able to lay it out when you were typing it out. That helps a lot. So when you write, you write not to be understood, to, to not be misunderstood. That's what I was yes. always taught. Very similar to what he was saying there. Yes. And the only bad thing about that is that we don't get a quote from Sir Tayange. We just got Andy today. We That's got, good stuff, though. Instead of A-G, we got A-S. So now I have to find the tab that has the what yeah. we're doing next. Ah, whoosh. Any listener emails to tend to? Yes, we do. And we had an email from Isaiah Hawk, and he was asking about, we'll just call it desires. Okay. So here is the email. I have a question about creativity. Is there a contrast between finding joy in creative work, like writing, thinking, drawing, or aesthetics, a contrast between that and finding delight in the law of the Lord, like Psalm 1 and in prayer? Do they coincide? When inspiration is flowing, I don't find myself focused on Jehovah. Yet I don't believe I'm rejecting him, but I'm aware it might occur. Um, Are we to find comfort and joy in creative work or God alone? Tim, you want me to lead out? Or do you want me to? Well, it's kind of a, a both. Like that last question, are we to find comfort and joy in creative work or God alone? And I don't think you have to create a mutually exclusive distinction between those two things. You can enjoy God and the creativity that he has gifted you in, uh, however that manifests itself. I want to be careful not to fall into a, well, is my artwork amoral? Uh, No, it's not. I mean, there's different uh, aspects, two major aspects to art. We've talked about this on the podcast, I believe. 
um, about how there is the um, aesthetic component. Is it aesthetically done well? Or, and then there's the other component is what is it, com- what is it communicating? Is it communicating something that is morally good and wholesome? So when you're thinking through creativity, have those two ideas in mind. Am I doing it well? And then what I am communicating or drawing or whatever it might be, uh, does it reflect um, uh, good morality? Yeah, I I would say something very similar. And the thought that came to my mind, Isaiah, was Dr. Paul spoke a few years ago, Dr. Paul Hartog at Refresh Conference. And the text he was working through is in 1 Corinthians and it's uh, chapter seven where he's talking about that the you know the single doesn't have to worry about the uh, the spouse essentially they can serve the Lord right and the point that Dr. Paul made was that that being married does not mean you no longer are able to serve the Lord you have a different capacity to do so and what he stated was I'm commanded to love my wife I'm also commanded to serve the Lord. So which one am I going to choose? And he's presenting it facetiously in the right. sense like you only get to pick one. Uh-huh. When in essence, you can do both at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. Yep. And so through loving your wife, which is commanded of a husband, you are serving the Lord and vice versa. And so the danger, I think, in a lot of aesthetic work is in the appeal to escape. And so you think about a very popular, um, a very popular series, Harry Potter, where you find out that you're not some poor, um, you know, parentless child. You're actually the most famous person in the world, and you get to jump on this train. You get a ticket to another world. Which wink, wink. We'll come. We'll come back to that in a future episode. What is so appealing about the ticket to the other world? You know what I'm saying? And it's not as if you know we can point the finger at like Harry Potter, which we have issues with, but like when you hear certain songs of scores of like Lord of the Rings, you get taken somewhere. And what is so appealing about that? It is beautiful and it does stir you, but there's also this appeal to go somewhere. Like it's taking you to another world. To escape. Yeah, and I think there's a beauty in that. And Lewis said this himself. I find in myself desires that this world cannot satisfy. That proves to me there's another world. That I'm made for another world. But you can in this life, you know, try to escape your reality by, you know, insert whatever, you know. Sure. And I think that is a danger uh, that would fall under the category of, of um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Idolatry. Oh yeah, where you're just you're exalting this uh, love of something that's not real, um, and and escaping to it, and that's where I think you know immersive video games or you know binging things you fall into that category, and that would be what I would be nervous of is uh, obviously there can be a fleshly tendency to just allow those loves to be an escape from reality, which I think would be unwise. But I think we've answered the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I would, I would say keep, uh, keep being, doing what you're doing. Yeah, keep being creative for the glory of the Lord. And uh, now we've got some uh, business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. What have you uh, been reading? Dr. So Lowell? I finished uh, Five Views on, 
five views of Christ in the Old Testament. The uh, five contributors um, present uh, differing views on just who is Jesus in the Old Testament. And the third approach was by Havila. I don't know how to say this person's name, Dharam Raja. Anyway, I killed it. We called, good? We called her Dr. D, um, <laughs> coined by uh, Greg Gosnell uh, in our meeting today. But um, anyway, in the, in the response to Dr. D, uh, she has, uh, John Golengay has this statement, which was really interesting, and it follows in from what we talked about last week. So last week, we talked about John Golengay and how he took a very postmodern approach to uh, Christ in the Old Testament. Well, it was not exactly accurate. And uh, John Golengay, he writes, uh, a first aspect of Dr. D's paper that struck me and intrigued me was that she brings the distinctively postmodern approach to our question. Whereas one could roughly say that Dr. Carter and Dr. Derucci are pre-modern, mm. while Dr. Longman and I are modern. And so Dr. D is postmodern. And we accused Dr. Uh, Golden Gay of being uh, uh, postmodern, but he's not. I think well, that he to is be, to modern. Be fair, they're both on the train, just one's ridden a little farther. <laughs> That's true. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> but postmodern Dr. D is basically uh, using a reader centered hermeneutic. Yeah. She talks about this common reader that she takes, a uh, common reader approach, and who is in control of the meaning of the text. The reader, yeah, the common reader is the one that that has the um the uh, control of the passage. So she stays on page one thirty one. The third preposition presupposition of this reader reader centered method is that authorial intention is not a driving consideration in the association the common reader makes between one text and another. So she just outright denies authorial intent. It says that the reader is the one that's in control of the meaning of the text. Yep. Now, Golden Gay rejects that. He would adhere to an authorial intent, meaning he gets the wonky in its application, where then it can basically mean yeah. nearly anything. Now, remind me, was he the one like that was going down the census plenier route? No, that was Longman. Longman okay, did census plenier. John Golden Gay had his view of inspiration where... Um, the Holy Spirit's involvement with the scriptures relate this involvement to their extraordinary capacity to say further things to people other than the audience that they originally addressed. Mm -hmm. So it's like the text is speaking more than what the author intended. Yeah. So he adheres to authorial intent, but then its meaning is bigger. So it sounds almost like census plenior, but it's similar. He, yeah. But it's Te technical technical differences in yeah. the lines there, but. So I finished reading uh, this book. It had some really interesting stuff in it. I don't know if I would really recommend it, even as I said last week, uh, Walter Kaiser's book on uh, the Messiah in the Old Testament. I think I would put above this one. Derucci had a very thought-provoking article, though I disagreed with his exegesis on multiple occasions. He did a really good job on Isaiah 42. So the different servant songs, I want to talk about them at some point. Mm. And some of his content on page 208 was helpful, and I agreed with him. And it was good to see somebody else that was kind of thinking along the same lines as myself. Yeah. And my my thought there, just as we interact with those terms we've brought up before, mm. I go back to Bowder when we were talking about you know modern, pre-modern, post-modern. And 
this is something that comes up in Certeange a little bit, and I'm 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 lost on it. But he really likes Thomas Aquinas. Certeange? I believe, I, yeah, huh. I, and you know, as a Catholic, that makes perfect sense. But um, and I, I believe that's who he's really exalting. But what what he really likes about it is the framework of truth that is established in his thinking. And you know, we can throw out terms like pre-modern, modern, postmodern, and, you know, well, what's the big deal? It's, it's a different framework of synthesizing truth together mm-hmm. that it's, it's an, uh, to, to be a postmodern, what is the logical cause of the meaning that you're proposing to be in that text? And you're, you're gutting the cause. You're putting the cause subsequent to the meaning. Like I, the reader, am redetermining the meaning of something that happened in the case of Scripture thousands of years before me. And now, who am I to say that their experience is invalid? I actually can't. You can feel very strongly about something that a text never meant to to make you feel that way, but it makes you feel that way. I'm not denying an experience. I think simply pointing out postmodern thinkers uh, or, or trying to analyze is that the way they arrive at that meaning is quite illogical. And that the framework they, and obviously from our standpoint, if you gut theology from a framework of knowledge, how do you arrive at your conclusions? Like on what basis do you find morality? What's, what's the great cause? And, and I think that's, you know, for a postmodern thinker interpreting scripture, like, what is the cause of the meaning if it's not from the author who is from God? God, right. Like, to, to flip the script around and say, well, who cares what they thought? Like, I get to determine that. It's, it's a very illogical framework of truth, which, you know. It's just, it just the text ends up not meaning anything. So, yeah. well, and it's, it's just why we reject it. There's a couple of queens out there that you need to find. There's, there's queens and there's ladies. There's lady wisdom, but then there's the queen of theology and then there's the queen of philosophy. And if you don't understand those women, you have a tough time in uh, theological studies. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so what I've been working on, and we were talking about this beforehand, I actually have no, I don't recollect why I got down this rabbit trail, which as avid listeners of the podcast will know that Charlie does this often, but I found myself reading in some Genesis commentaries, studying the, uh, what is the image of God? Uh, so Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make man in our own image in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. And so what, what is the image and the likeness of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27? And those same terms are repeated in Genesis 5 and in Genesis 9. And uh, well, what are we talking about? In yeah. what sense does a human share in a likeness with God uh, in, a, in a differential sense to other created beings, maybe angels, maybe other uh, beasts of the field and you know, birds of the air and sea creatures and all that. Soulmate. Did you get to soulmate? Uh, it's to be continued. To, well, so the commentaries interact with that and what's interesting is we've also been studying in Hebrews, where in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews gives a Christological interpretation of Psalm 8, 
where like this is the image, you know, like, uh, or, or however you want to play that. And then obviously we've done a lot of discussion in second Corinthians where we are made into the same image of the glory. And so you're trying to do like a biblical theology of what the image is. And, uh, I, I don't think second Corinthians four and Genesis one are speaking to the same issue at all. I think it's very different, but, uh, so a couple of books that I was reading there, world biblical commentary, uh, on Genesis one through 15 by Gordon Wenham. And then the, uh, what's comment? Is it the Yale? Uh, N-I-C-O-T? Uh, no, it's Hamilton. It's the new American. It's, uh, Kenneth oh. Matthews. Matthews. Yep. And, uh, they both kind of walk through some views. We'll, we'll probably come back to that in another episode, but that's, something fresh that I was reading recently. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Listener, keep reading. Even yes. if it's something that all of a sudden sparks your interest, like the image of God. Just, yeah. And I, I, I wish I could remember why I just ripped this open today and was like, well, let's read about that. Um, anyway, that's books in business. And, uh, you have the content for the episode. Whoosh. You, Yes, I'm going to clip that and I'm going to use that soundbite right there. So Bible Faculty Leadership Summit. Yes. Summer 2023. Tim writes an article and the title is? The Relative Insignificance of Sex in the Old Testament, A Study of the Degrees of Sexual Sin and Consequences of Sex in the Old Testament. That is the full title. And so tell us where this article comes from. And sure. then get in, get into the points. So the article is a couple of different things. I mean, it is a bit of clickbait. So if you really want to dis- <laughs> destroy me or something, you could easily do that. I'm not saying that sex is insignificant, um, but what um, a lot of the books that are being published right now, I are very much um, blasting the purity culture of my generation. Uh, when I was a high schooler and college student, uh, they don't like it at all. And they're basically saying, listen, intimacy is not as important as it has historically, or the church has historically made it. Uh, this kind of fits the cultural air, which we're breathing right now. So uh, what I am doing is I'm playing off of that idea. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think that we have um, made a bigger deal of intimacy than the Bible makes of it. And by studying the sins in the Old Testament, we get a better picture of how important intimacy is. So my goal is to push back against the modern authors that are saying, listen, sex is not that important. Um, but at the same time, I'm saying, hey, we need to acknowledge why uh, intimacy is such a big deal in the Bible. What originally got me interested in this topic was uh, a study of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 6. I was working through, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Let me pull it up here quick. Uh, So Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7 have all these exhortations about fleeing from Dame Folly. Uh, These were texts that I meditated upon as a youth, and I sought to live a holy life. And I still use these texts and appeal to them, to young men, that they should um, live holy lives before the Lord. So in chapter 6, verses uh, 24 and following, it says, To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. 
For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Do you have that up in the ESV? Verse 26 is the verse under consideration. I was studying through this verse, and I noticed a contrast. What do you have? So ESV, uh, I'll read 25 with it. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So the contrast is between the <coughs> the expense of the prostitute, the harlot, and what is her expense here? A loaf of bread. Okay, so would that be an expensive cost or an inexpensive cost? Uh, Doesn't sound too expensive. Let's put it that way. Not in our. Okay. Not for us today. Now, the last line, though... Are we talking Sarah Lee, or are we talking like Wonder <laughs> Okay, so... You're horrendous. Okay, so the last line here, verse 26, I'm just explaining the text, okay? What's the last line here? An adulteress, and then notice that the ESV creates a contrast, but the, an adulteress, what does it say? Uh, hunts down a precious life. Is okay, the so there's... Notice the word, word life there. And this is what I observed, is that what does bread do? You eat bread, so then you get life, life, sustenance. So you see the contrast in the text is between two different expenses that both cost life, but the one is rather inexpensive, whereas the other one's going to kill you. Yeah. And the reason for that is because adultery was considered a very, very bad sin. Uh, the reason adultery was a very bad sin is because of the the progeny, and it brought a, fa- a man's progeny into his his children uh, and who who his children were into question. And this is what I discovered, and that's why uh, adultery was such a wicked sin in the Old Testament and was criminalized. How are we doing? Good. All right. So um, what we've done as moderns is we've actually read a different definition of adultery back into the ancient world. Uh, when we think of the word adultery, we think of sexual unfaithfulness. But sexual unfaithfulness is not the, uh, the biblical idea of adultery, because the focus of adultery is the progeny, the preservation of a man's name. So the Old Testament was more concerned with the preservation of a man's descendant, uh, descendants than an act of intimacy. Um, and this was actually pretty widely acknowledged uh, throughout the, um, the biblical world. Uh, when we, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines modern adultery as voluntary a sexual act between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse or partner. Um, but the, the Old Testament, uh, Elaine Goodfriend has a definition here, is that it's an intimate act between a married or betrothed woman and any man other than her husband. The marital status of the woman's partner is inconsequential, since only the married or betrothed woman is bound to fidelity. Now, in our equality age, we kind of hate that statement. But who got pregnant? The woman was the one that got pregnant. And so that's why there's actually a focus on the woman within this definition of of, uh, adultery. So the biblical world, it loathed adultery because of the paternal ramifications. So if uh, if a man had an adulterous relationship with another woman, the, the, uh, the husband, I mean, he was ticked because guess what was going to happen? 
you know, she was bringing into question his descendants. This was particularly illustrative when it comes to like David mm. and the sin that he committed. Because when he had an adulterous relationship with uh, Bathsheba, what did he then try to do? Hide? Yeah, and then he tried to cover, cover it up. up. And then he was going to pass off his descendant onto Uriah. Hmm. He, he was committing the very act and doing the very thing that adultery was considered a heinous thing for. So um, anyway, so... Uh, as we think through the ancient hatred of adultery, I want to read through uh, a quote by Philo. Um, this is, helps us just to bring things, I think, into focus a little bit. Very painful, too, is the uncertain status of the children. Uh, for if the wife is not chaste, there will be no doubt and dispute as to the real paternity of the offspring. Then if the fact is undetected, the fruit of the adultery usurp the position of the legitimate and form an alien and bastard brood and will ultimately succeed to the heritage of the putative father to which they have no right. Okay, so, do you understand like what he's saying there and what Philo is saying there? It's like, if David was successful with Uriah, Uriah is then going to raise a son that he thinks is his own but is actually David's. And then what happens to the inheritance of Uriah? It goes to... It goes to actually David's heir. Yes. Okay, so this was why adultery was such a, a wicked sin and it had such significant uh, ramifications and was criminalized in the ancient world. So as I um, continue reading through... Well, I'll just stop there. You get the idea. So this is... Um, a focus of of the uh, the Old Testament, and I think that provides a little bit of light and why the which by the way coming back to Proverbs six, okay, the prostitute being a, a, a piece of bread, um, it was more than that. It that is like a very insignificant amount even in the ancient world. Um, the point is that the author of Proverbs is making a very significant contrast to emphasize. Um, the ramifications of adultery. It's like, she's going to go after everything. Your very life is at stake uh, because this was a criminalized offense. By the way, what was not a criminalized offense in the Old Testament law? Okay, actually prostitution as a whole was not criminalized. Mm. It was cultic prostitution was criminalized, but not prostitution itself. So that's why there's a, a disparity and a difference there. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is what I, I was working through, and I had a whole lot more that I said there, and I looked at um, the unmarried woman. I'm not going to go through that part of it. But then I wanted to flip it around, because then I was like, okay, the guys seem to be getting off kind of easy. Okay. <laughs> And then I'm like, okay, I want to see what does the actual uh, ethical laws have to say uh, about purity? And there are two main texts that I wanted to look at. The one was Proverbs 22.14. And so uh, let's go ahead and go there. Proverbs 22.14. The mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is, he who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. And this led me on another uh, rabbit trail. He who is abhorred by the Lord. 
God, the person that the person whom the Lord hates. Okay, how does God judge, or at least what is one way in which God judges the man whom he hates, according to Proverbs 22.14. The mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. You know, how do we garner the hatred of God? By sin. Now then, that sin can manifest itself in a lot of different ways, but particularly with wicked men, how does that sin often manifest itself? Sexual sins. Sexual sins. Okay, so this led to a little bit of irony here. Um, As wicked men commit acts, especially against women, that are uh, garnering the hatred of God, what does God then use to destroy them? Immoral woman. Immoral woman. And I'm like, that's kind of a fascinating, ironic statement because wicked men are actually flirting with the very instrument that God is going to use to destroy them. Hmm. And then that led me to, huh, you know what? It talks about finding a virtuous woman. How do you go about finding a virtuous woman? What does the Bible actually have to say about finding a virtuous woman? What do you do? to find a virtuous woman. Verse 3. Go ahead. So Proverbs 31, uh, verse 2. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Okay. That's good. All right. That's not where I went, but that's good. Well, my my thought, that, well, once you mentioned the virtuous woman, I just pulled out Proverbs 31. Sure, sure. And here there seems to be a very strong negative, uh, a double negative admonition here. Don't give your strength to women. Yeah. Like in spe- Which ones? Uh-huh. The ones that will destroy you. Yeah. Um, so Proverbs 18.22 and 19.14, both of these Proverbs teach that an excellent woman comes from God. Do you have one of those there? What was the verse in verse? 18.22 and 19.14. I did it backwards. Oh, yeah. So 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Sounds like the opposite of the other verse. That's exactly what I discovered. And I had glossed over these in the past, but I had never put together the, oh, if you commit acts that anger God, how is God then, what is one way in which God might judge you? With a wicked woman. Hmm. Okay, and what's 1914 say? House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So you acquire a prudent wife from the Lord, or you get a woman who's going to be a deep pit from God. And what's the difference? The man who garners the favor of God by living a righteous life, or the man who garners the anger of the Lord? Hmm. Yeah. By, right, by living a wicked life. We see the same principle in Ecclesiastes 7.26. With Solomon, who will escape the woman whose heart is snares and nets? Can't. Well, no, in 7.26, the man who pleases God. Oh, sure. Okay. The man who pleases God is the one who will escape her. And so this is like, huh, this is a fascinating concept where, you know, guys aren't just left off the hook. And furthermore, as I publish my book, Song of Songs for Singles, and I write this 
you know, treatise on you're never guaranteed anything. Well, what do you need to focus on as a young man? You need to focus on pleasing the Lord. Okay, so now uh, the second text that I went to was Proverbs 23, 27. So hmm. that's really enlightening, not, not to belabor a point. It. That's very enlightening for the Ecclesiastes 7, 25 Do you have it up 29. there? And so, because he does say, he who pleases God escapes her. Yeah. But the sinner is taken by her. And uh, just thinking about who's writing this, I mean, he just, he found so many wicked women. Right. And uh, why, why could he not get rid of them? Because God was giving them to him. Right. Like it was, it was the self-deprecating, you know, he's, he is gaining the anger of the Lord through wicked living. Yes. God is giving, he's giving know, him what he, uh, and I say Hosea, uh, you know, you reap, uh, you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Like the, you re, you reap what you sow, Solomon, yeah. if you want it, here you go. Here's a thousand of them. Mm-hmm. Have fun. And he, yeah. Anyway. He got it. So the next verse that I uh, studied out uh, was Proverbs 23, 27. And in Proverbs 23, 27, why does this do this? The thing changes passages on me. Proverbs 23, 27, it states, For a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. Okay, so these two different Proverbs that talking about the wicked woman and this, uh, this first line is very similar to the previous one. It was the mouth of the harlot. That's the deep pit. The deep pit is like a hunter's pit. She ensnares, captures. The second line, however, and a seductress is a narrow well. Uh, that metaphor I spent a fair amount of time thinking through and studying through. What does it mean that a seductress is a narrow well? So this proverb, verse 27, is in the context of a three-line proverb. I'm going to read verses 26 through 28. I have a thought about what that means. Good. Let's think about it, but not yet. Let me read through these verses, and then you give it to me. (laughs) Which, by the way, listener, I haven't ran this by Charlie or anything. He is just getting thrown into this whole conversation. The single guy, just getting thrown into the adultery conversation. (laughs) Which, we're past that. Sure. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim, and increases the unfaithful among men. So that second line, the second verse, she also lies in wait as for a victim. Okay, so she's like predatory to kill him. The deep pit is a hunting pit. And increases the unfaithful among men. And I want to talk about that phrase too, but first the narrow well. What did you have for the narrow well? My only thought there was that there'd just be a very inefficient way to get water. Yeah, you're pretty, you're, you're pretty close. If it's I a think narrow you're right, well, exactly what right. can you send down there? Something very small. Yes. So you're going to have to do it over and over and over. Yeah. No, that's, I think, actually the metaphor. Look at you, Charlie. Yes. You are amazing. I went to Bible college. <laughs> All right. And then how does sexual sin actually imprison and enslave an individual? It's a narrow well. Yeah, they have to keep going back for more and more and more. Yeah. And the the idea is like, oh, this this is going to satiate my thirst. Mm. 
But what does it do? It just gives you like a little bit of a cup. And then what do you need? You need more. And this is how the wicked woman ensnares him. And he just keeps coming back and he needs more and more and more and more. And I'm like, this is a metaphor for pornography and the sexual sin and the enslavement of it that is prevalent within our young men. Is that it's a narrow well. And I'm like, huh, I had never read this before or studied it. I think it's a very fitting uh, principle that we need to teach uh, our young men. And so as I studied through this whole thing, okay, what's the title of my, my article? The Relative Insignificance of Sex. Because what is our world communicating right now? They're saying that sex is not that important. That's what they're saying. Okay, well... Are there some ways in that it's not as important as we've made it? Well, you know what? Adultery is a really big deal, especially in the Old Testament times, uh, because of the emphasis on children. Yeah. Guess what? That's not so much of an emphasis anymore, is it? <laughs> well, they've solved that. Problem. Yeah, yeah. We, I know, and I write about that in my paper. It's like, that's not a concern. Nobody has that concern anymore. All right, and then the whole thing about a virgin and the the laws, the criminal laws about that, and, and it's just like, okay, that doesn't apply anymore either. And so as a result, what has our Christian literature and the secularists and everybody had done? They've looked at these, you know, Old Testament regulations and everything. They're like, that stuff doesn't apply anymore. And it's like, we keep wanting to say, yes, it does. It's really important. But we're saying it's really important for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways. Is intimacy important? Yes, it is. What does the Proverbs have to say? Well, if you're going to commit sin, particularly a sexual sin, guess what you're garnering? The anger of God. Hmm. And guess what you'll never find? A good wife. A good wife. And if you want to find a good wife, what do you need to do? You need to live a holy and just life before your God. Yeah. Okay? Now, furthermore, what's one of the real implications of sexual sin, particularly for young men? It's enslaving. Yeah. You have this narrow well, and it's never going to satiate the thirst that God designed for it to satiate. That's a message not only for unmarried young men, but also married men. Because often married men have this perception of dame folly, and they're seeking to be satiated, and it's never going to be satiating, satiated. It's, it's lust, okay? And Proverbs teaches that. Okay, and then the final point that I wanted to uh, go through was in um, the next verse, the unfaithful among men. Do you have it there? My app keeps changing my What verse are we looking at? It's 22. Uh, 23, 27, and 28. For a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Huh, how does she, in, uh, how does she um, increase the traitors among mankind? Okay, so when we think through adultery, a lot of times, well, I mean, with adultery, it focuses on woman. And in the Old Testament, if a man went and had a relationship with a prostitute, that was not considered adultery because nobody cared about her, the prostitute. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if I qualified and explained that earlier. That was not considered a criminal uh, sin in the Old Testament. Uh, If he went and he consorted with uh, a prostitute, nobody really cared because what progeny is brought into question? No one's. No one's. It's a prostitute. Okay. So so that is not a criminological infraction. 
But then what does this verse say? This immoral woman is increasing the traitors. Traitors. So even if it wasn't criminologically prosecuted because the concern for the progeny was not a legitimate concern, what was the man doing? He was committing an act that was treacherous against whom? It doesn't himself? say, it doesn't say, but it's presumably his wife. Oh, sure. It was an act of treachery against his wife. There's actually some discussion about it. Some believe that it's the parents because of the parents in the two verses earlier. But the act of treacherous, the treacherous act seems to coincide with Malachi chapter two, where the men of Israel were acting treacherously. It's the same word, acting treacherously against their wives. And, um, and so there is in some way different from adultery, some way in which a man who does have a relationship with this other woman, okay, is committing a treacherous act against his wife. Um, and so the guys aren't just like off the hook. This is an important affair. And while adultery may not be uh, prosecuted, it might not be as big of an issue in our day and age. And same with some of these other things. Uh, sexual sin is a big deal, and our young men need to walk in faithfulness before their God, and Proverbs encourages them to do that through ethical exhortations. Ethical exhortations. So what do you think, Carter? I just kind of dumped on you, this controversial, <laughs> I don't know if it's controversial. No, I, I think you're, you're on to something there. And uh, it is a unique perspective to look at it from what the husband, and you, you kind of turned this in the middle of our discussion, the guys kind of get off light. Well, what's going on here? Well, they're, they're acting treacherously. Yes. They are, uh, I don't know if you'd use the word depriving, but they're, they're depriving their own wife mm -hmm. of the, the motherly role mm -hmm. by going and laying with all these other people. Um, and, uh, in, you know, in the case of prostitution, it's not so much their own progeny that's in question, but mm -hmm. they're treacherously acting towards the wife. Mm -hmm. And then if they are committing adultery, then you do have the issue of the, of the children. Right. Who, whose are they um, in that, that issue? Mm -hmm. And that was a major important component of the Old Testament world. I just don't know if we really understand that. In that Old Testament setting, whose children were who was a big deal to God. So, All right. Well, thank you, Tim. And we will uh, wrap up here. We're going to close by talking about adultery, but kind of in a slightly different sense. Tim, a couple of weeks ago, talked about James chapter four, and uh, we're going to come back to that. And a uh, really simple question that he asks here in James chapter four, where do wars and fights come from? And what I think James is doing is he is uh, illustrating a very common occurrence in everyday life that teaches us, reveals to us something very spiritual about ourselves. That on the outside, we look at conflict and we want to blame other people for that conflict. Uh, however, James, and not, not just James, a lot of other people in the Bible, but James here, points out that that fight with another person reveals a lot about what you love. And ultimately, he's getting down to idolatrous or uh, immorality, uh, de uh, immoral desires at work in our heart. But just notice what he says there in James 4, 
verse 4. Looking at these types of people who want things, can't get them, they fight and quarrel to try and achieve these desires in their heart, and they can't get what they want, and it just upsets them. What does he call them? <laughs> Adulterers and yeah. adulteresses. You adulterous people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he asks another question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is something I need to study out some more. Yeah, and so... Spiritual adultery. Exactly. And so you could draw an equal sign there. What he calls adultery, and, and this comes up in other epistles, so you could look it up. The same term is used uh, in Second Peter, uh, I think speaking to exactly what Tim was discussing earlier, people committing adultery uh, within marriage, sexual sin. He draws uh, an equal sign. So people who are adulterers or committing spiritual adultery, they have a friendship that creates a conflict between them and God. And you think about how many layers there are in this picture. So say you want to, you know, you covet your neighbor's wife, which to go and take that wife would be? Adultery. Adultery. You want it and you can't get it. So you are fighting and quarreling because there's this desire within you that you can't get. And what does James point out about that? We'll call it physical. We know it's a spiritual issue, but you want that person's wife and you can't get it. And that's the source of your conflict is mm -hmm. I can't have the thing I want. Well, there's actually a deeper conflict there that uh, there's a, a conflict between you and the Lord because of the presence of that desire. Mm -hmm. And James is trying to, in wisdom, point out that that friendship with the world, that mm -hmm. adulterous, immoral desire is so much more your problem than not getting that thing out here in the mm -hmm. physical life yep. that you want. And you could fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be... Yeah, you're unfaithful to the Lord because you're desiring whatever worldly pleasure it might be. It might be as simple as sleep. It might be as complicated as, I don't know, a million dollars or whatever. Yeah, and so, and he he's... Don't you know that having that desire in you is you're, you're a friend of the world and that makes you an enemy of God. Mm -hmm. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A very simple statement that the desires at work within us cause conflict. They cause it on a horizontal plane with the people around us, but there's conflict vertically. Mm -hmm. That when I adopt the ways of thinking and the rules of living that our world tells us are true, mm -hmm. that that creates indignation between me and the Father. And that, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not only a problem for you, but it will affect the people around you. And especially in the home, especially in the church, uh, living a very fleshly uh, world-friendly lifestyle like this, uh, it will, through your character and conduct, affect the people around you. That They will be influenced by your fleshly life. And uh, that's certainly true in sexual sin, like, you know, immorality, like pornography or adultery, some mm -hmm. things like that in marriage. It's true of other things too. And uh, 
it really highlights, we were, we were talking off air, you think about Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore one another. Uh, spiritual restoration within the body of Christ is devoted to people who are not friends of the world, who are yielding themselves to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And it's those people who have the influence of the glory of God present that can actually minister to people. And when that is absent, when you're a friend of the world, and there's conflict between you and your spouse, you and the Lord, maybe that's not the best time to go and be a discipler. <laughs> uh, maybe that's the time to humble yourself. And uh, I think it's in those moments that we get the most opportunity to display the character of Christ, not in, in any way in our sinfulness, because he is sinless. But I think the prime virtue of Christ is that he, in the appearance of God, does not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he makes himself of no reputation. He humbles himself, even to the point of death, taking on the form of a slave. It's that humility that we have the opportunity to display when we have failed, and we can confess our sin rather than justify it, and we can repent of our sin before the Lord instead of hide it or uh, avoid the Lord. We can, in, in the congregation of the church, uh, be open and transparent and yield to the Spirit in, in the working and in the family of the church. And so in those moments, rather than allow the enmity and the friendship of the world to persist, we can humble ourselves and yield to the Lord. And uh, that's not a, not a one-time thing. It's a, probably a, at least a couple of times a day thing until he takes us home or comes back. So um, don't live a, a spiritually adulterous life. Uh, recognize that the desires of the world within us create enmity, enmity between uh, our Heavenly Father and us as His children, and we should solve that by seeking Him in humility, confessing our sin, repenting. Uh, as James 4 says, we should uh, submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee, draw near to God, he will draw near to you, we should cleanse our hands, we should purify our hearts, we should be wretched and mourn and weep. We should let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. We should humble ourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings Podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings Podcast.